This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Mann, sitting in for Carol Off. Hello, I'm Karen Gordon. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight's system of impunity. Saudi Arabia sentences five people to death for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But we talked to a UN official who says justice won't be served until there is a trial for the prince accused of ordering the hit. Home for the holidays. A Nova Scotia woman tells us how a newspaper story about her struggle for shelter became an eye-opening experience for a community and what she hopes will be a door-opening experience for her. Her cover is cone. They'd seen picture after picture, but now archaeologists in Egypt have found the remains of an actual woman from the time of the pharaohs wearing a pointy little hat. Tempest in a sea pot. Archaeologists in Greece find a 2,000-year-old Roman shipwreck. Only the sunken boat has long ago dissolved, leaving only pots and theories about a delicious cargo of olive oil. No time like the present. The hour is fast approaching for our annual airing of Alan Maitland's reading of O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi, a Christmas classic about the gifts that can't be bought. And cottagers cheesed. A German cheesemonger asks a court for justice after an upstairs neighbor gets sniffy about the delicious smells stinking up their joint. As it happens, the Monday edition. Radio that just knows this is going to end with one of them fetaing and the other one feeling blue. In the eyes of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, justice has been served. Whether the outside world agrees is another matter. In Riyadh today, five men were sentenced to death for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The U.S.-based journalist and critic of the Saudi government was murdered and then dismembered inside the Saudi Arabian Istanbul consulate in 2018. But in a public statement today, a prosecutor said that Mr. Khashoggi's killing was not premeditated. Instead, it was a decision taken, quote, at the spur of the moment. Agnes Calamar disputes that. Ms. Calamar is the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings and the author of an inquiry into Mr. Khashoggi's death. We reached her in Lyon, France. Ms. Calamar, you called this trial in Saudi Arabia, and I'm quoting, the antithesis of justice. Why? Because the people that have been sentenced today are those at the lowest level of the chain of command. They are the hitmen. They executed an order. Uh, The people who uh, masterminded the killing of Jamal Khashoggi have all walked free. So these uh, eight people were found guilty of, of 11 on trial. You mentioned the most senior people being cleared. There's three of them. How did the judge justify that decision? Well, that's a very good question because this is another problem with the trial. As we know, it was held behind a closed door. I have had access to confidential information about many of the hearings. What I can tell you is the following. The prosecutor himself throughout the trial argued that the killing was premeditated and was not an accident. The family of Jamal Khashoggi represented by a lawyer, demanded that all 11 defendants be sentenced to death and that all of them were responsible for 
uh, the trial. The only ones that argued that this was an accident were, not surprisingly, the defendant. So the conclusion that was reached today is in keeping with what the defendant seemingly appeared to have argued throughout the hearings. It also goes against the evidence that I have collected. Of the eight found guilty, three are going to jail, five have been sentenced to death. There are going to be some who say this is justice in some form. No, it cannot be justice when the hitmen only are facing justice. Look, I've been working on crimes against journalists for the last 15 years. There is a system of impunity worldwide because we never go for the mastermind. The killing of a journalist is not like any other killing. It involves corruption. It involves repression. It involves propaganda. It involves abuse of power. So no, I will never find a trial that end up with five persons found guilty who were frankly the lowest of the lowest in that awful event, I cannot conclude that justice has been rendered. In your very thorough investigation of Mr. Khashoggi's murder earlier this year, what did you determine about who actually ordered his killing? The evidence points overwhelmingly and in fact in only one direction, which is that the killing was a state killing. The second step should then consist in unpacking what we mean by state. That's what the um, prosecutor should have done. Looked at who within the state has either allowed for the crime to take place, has ordered the crime, has incited the crime. All of those scenarios should have been investigated. It is my conclusions, based on the evidence I collected, based on the identity of the team, based on their working relationship for all of them, There is absolutely no doubt that the liability of the Crown Prince is involved. I could not conclude, like the CIA did, that it is involved because he ordered the crime. What I have asked for is for a follow-up investigation into his responsibilities. In that confidential material about the trial that, that you received, is there any indication that anyone raised the state's responsibility, be it the Crown Prince or anyone else? Not directly. There is evidence that the defendant consistently argued that they were obeying orders. What the defendant also argued against evidence is that they killed Mr. Kashugi in the spare of the moment. To suggest for one second that uh, Mr. Kashugi could have been dismembered in the spare of the moment, that um, the body parts could have been carried out, handed over to unknown individuals, that the crime scene could have been sufficiently cleaned up so that People who will come in the following day will not be horrified by what they witnessed. I mean, clearly it requires planning. The presence of the forensic doctor who was brought in the team at least 24 hours before the execution of the crime, the fact that there is a recording of that same doctor explaining how he's going to proceed with dismembering a body, you know, that cannot be an accident. You are one of the only people to hear the recorded phone calls about this and also recordings of Mr. Khashoggi pleading for his life. Can you tell me how much of that has stayed with you? 
Oh, you know, of course it has stayed with me. These are the last words of Jamal Khashoggi. He entered the consulate a happy man. And what does he confront? Five killers in the consul office. So that stays with me. The, the you know, the, the discrepancies, the gap between what he was thinking when he entered the consulate and what happened to him. If this trial is a sham and, and not true justice, what recourse is there? What is next? Look, there are several things that can be done. First, talking about Turkey. It has investigated the killing for the last 12 months. It has accumulated evidence that must be made public now. It can proceed under its constitutional law through a a trial in absentia. So that's what it must do. The United States, because Jamal Khashoggi was a resident of the United States, there can be an investigation by the FBI. It has a mandate to do so. Finally, Jamal was unforcedly disappeared. Jamal was tortured. The killing of Jamal Khashoggi raises to the level of constituting an international crime against which universal jurisdiction attached. So places like Canada, like France, like Belgium, like the UK, any countries that has domesticated universal jurisdiction should proceed with investigating and trying those that are responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Ms. Kalamar, it's very good to talk with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much to you. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Agnes Calamar is the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings. We reached her in Lyon, France. For more on this story, go to cbc.ca slash AIH. It's been a roller coaster of a year for Joni Rutledge. In June, Ms. Rutledge was evicted from her apartment. Now she's looking forward to starting the new year with new housing. Earlier this month, Joni Rutledge was featured in a profile published by the Nova Scotia newspaper, The Chronicle Herald. It's made the holiday season a little different from what she'd anticipated. We reached Joni Rutledge at the hotel she's staying at in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Ms. Rutledge, where did you think you would be living this holiday season? Uh, probably in my car. You know, I, I was uh, living in my car, and that's probably where I'd be. Before John DeMont of the Chronicle Herald published a profile about you in, in the newspaper earlier this month, how many people knew about your situation, that you were in your car? Not very many, because I didn't tell very many. Um, I was ashamed that I was in that situation, and uh, I uh, didn't share with too many people. So there was a few people that knew, but not very many. Now, ever since it's been published, a lot of people have responded. They've really been (laughs) moved by your story. Why do you think that is? I think because um, they realize that I'm the face of uh, homelessness, that it's not the person that has an addiction problem. It's It could be anybody. It could be anybody, pretty much, yeah. So how did you end up living in your car? I gather it's been a a really rough decade for you. It has been. It's been uh, quite rough up and down. I was working. Um, I became ill a year ago and had surgery. And I was due to go back in January, and my um, medical EI 
ran out, so I went back to work. It was on less hours. So I couldn't catch up with rent. I was just running like a gerbil in a cage, and uh, I just, they gave me an eviction notice at the end of June, and I had no hard feelings for them because I understand, you know, if you can't pay your rent, you need to leave. And then 10 days later, I lost my uh, job that I was at for eight and a half years. And why did you lose your job? Well, it was absenteeism. I was unable to get my vacation days, so I called in sick. And, uh, you know, I knew the rules, and I signed the paper, so it, it, it was because of absenteeism. And I gather, you know, from, from seeing this profile and people's response to it, um, some of your former colleagues were, were really touched by your story. One of them even started up a GoFundMe. He said you're a really good yes. person. Oh, they're all so sweet. <laughs> people are good, really good. There was uh, some people from junior high school that I had met, and I, one guy came up and he said to me, he says, you don't recognize me, do you? And I said, mm, no. And he said, remember junior high school. And I said, that's 100 years ago. I said, we both changed a little bit. So, <laughs> But no, it was wonderful. And one guy, he came over to our car and he said, my wife makes homemade chicken soup, and he had a, a package of that. Hmm. Uh, so There was a single mom, just, too. Oh, the single mom. Yes, she was so sweet. She came up, and she says, I'm sorry you can't be more, but I'm a single mom, and I want you to have this. And she gave me $5. She said, I know where you're coming from. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing. Before all of this happened, you've been dealing with the social welfare system ever since you lost your job. What have you learned from that experience? Well, um, I went to EI, and they took seven and a half weeks to let me know that I can't get EI because I was fired. And then I ended up in the hospital in September, and uh, I was there for two weeks, over two weeks. And this... um, social worker there told me to apply through sickness. And I said, well, I lost my job. I can't apply through sickness. And uh, he said, no. He said, you are sick and you were sick and that's why you lost your job, really. And yes, it was. You know, it was through absenteeism, through sickness. You know, I understand. I get upset when I speak about community services, but I understand they have the rules they have to follow as well. And, you know, it's it's been a system that has had so many bandages and, you know, cracks filled and stuff like that. It, it needs to be started from the ground up. You said earlier that, you know, you, you're a, a face for homelessness that maybe people didn't expect. What do you want the average person to know about what it's like to be homeless, things that, that they may not see in a newspaper, they may not expect? Well, um, for me, the feeling of shame, of I'm a loser, you know, here I am at this age where I should have, you know, a little bit of pension, looking at retirement in a few years and that. And here I am living out of a car. That's why I didn't tell a whole lot of people. The other part, as far as the physical living there, it's um, bathrooms. You know, you either had to go to the store or some place where you could freshen up and... Um, 
if you were one person to get up through the night to go to the washroom, then it's a kilometer drive down to the gas station. So, mm. you know, it's things like that. You're staying in a hotel right now with help from an anonymous donor and the Department of Community Services is involved. What are you hoping for in the new year? In the new year, I'm hoping that um, I'm on a priority list for senior housing. And um, I'm also hoping that um, perhaps with um, Barbara Adams, the MLA, my MLA down here, she's been really wonderful stirring the pot a little bit. And I think it would be nice to uh, to check in to see what other countries and other places are doing for their homeless and what we can incorporate and improve here. Not just homelessness, but community services as well, as a whole, I should say. All right. Uh, Ms. Rutledge, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. I think it's important that we all hear your situation and, and that it's it's nice to hear that people have stepped up to help you. You're very welcome, and thank you for talking to me. All the best to you. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We reached Joni Rutledge in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, where she plans on spending a quiet Christmas at the hotel where she's been staying. For more on her story, visit our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. It sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea a long time ago, a large Roman ship that dates back about 2,000 years. Now researchers say they've uncovered the site of that shipwreck using sonar technology. But the only thing now visible on the seafloor is the ship's cargo. It consists of pots called amphorae, and they're in very good condition. The details are published in the Journal of Archaeological Science. George Varentinos is one of the authors. We reached him in Patras, Greece. Mr. Ferentinos, for those who haven't seen the photographs, describe for us what this shipwreck looks like on the seafloor. The shipwreck actually has an oval shape, which is about uh, 33 meters, 35 meters long and 12, 13 meters wide, the maximum width of the the boat. And uh, the height of the hull is about uh, three and a half meters. So actually, if you you see from the sea surface, you see an oval shape, uh, structure. We even uh, think you can see the the aphore. Before I get to the aphore, I just want to be clear. You can see the shape of the ship. Is there any of the no. actual ship left? No, no. You don't see the shape of the ship. You see the shape of the aphore, which is exactly the shape of a ship of that time. If you see the ship from the from the high, from the top, so these from above these yes. amphorae tell you it, it was packed with these. Um, what is packed? Yes. Why were there so many of these pots? On the surface surface, on the surface layer, you will see about one thousand two hundred amphorae. But below them, there must be others. It was a very big ship, and uh, the amphorae can go in five levels: one line, two lines, three lines, four lines, five lines. So. In each level, you expect to have about, let's say, on average, 1,000 amphorae. So if you multiply the five levels with about 1,000 amphorae, you make something between five and 6,000. So what was in them? What was the purpose? Could be in all the amphorae, could be only wine. Could be also olive oil, could be 
barley or wheat, and also could be dry nuts. But maybe something, half of them could be olive oil, and another half of them could be wine. Now, we don't know what it was in, what it is inside, but we can find, and this is going to be the next step. You know, when you have olive oil or wine inside the amphora, you know, the shell of the amphora uh, absorbs some of this, uh, of the olive oil or of the wine. So if you scratch a little bit from the inside shell, uh, like dust, then you can have a DNA analysis and you can find if you have olive oil and or if you have wine in it. I understand there might also be some kind of sauce with sardines that was in these pots? Yes, okay. There is a possibility. That time uh, the, the, the Romans liked a, a, a sauce called, that time in Latin, uh, garum, garum. And that sauce may, is made of, uh, of uh, sardines, smashed sardines. From what I have read, it was very popular uh, to the Romans, and I can compare it to the present-day ketchup in America. Do you have any idea what the route then would have been for this ship, where it was coming from and where it was going to? Now, we can find it eh, when we find uh, what the amphora were filled eh, if they have the olive oil and with the DNA, we may be able to find, uh, in general, not for sure, that uh, the, the oil was coming from uh, the Asia Minor or from the Palestine or even from Greece. You described the, the shape of the ship itself, including the fact that it was more than 30 meters. How important and how, how significant is the ship itself in terms of its size ah, and shape? Ship. Now, the ship is, for, is important for the following things. Uh, first of all, let's say it's one of the largest ships found up to now to in the Mediterranean Sea. Is the fourth actually largest? Fourth so largest. So it means that it was an important uh, ship. It was the, the the three others are about forty meters long, and this is thirty-five. The other thing is that uh, part of the ship is buried under the sediment, the sea floor, and this may indicate that we have part of the frame still exists there, of the wooden frame. So if we dig in the sea floor and we get some parts from of the wooden frame then we can analyze it and we can find what kind of tree if it's a birch if it's uh, something else and probably fr- from where the tree is coming from do you have any idea how the ship sank now theoretically as i say uh, it went down not because of bad weather because as, I, as I, I said to you before, what I see on the surface is the oval shape of the amphora, which is exactly like the oval shape if we have seen the, the wood around the vessel. This means that the ship went down slowly without turning over. So it couldn't be storm. So apparently there was a shift, I reckon, a shift of the amphora in the hull. So it sank slowly, it did not capsize? Yes, no. Slowly it will go down, the keel will touch the sea floor, and then gradually it's going to tilt. So the amphora will keep the shape, the shape of the ship, actually. Are you excited by this find? It must be pretty, pretty exciting for you. I'm also excited, very much excited. Well, Mr. Ferentinos, I really appreciate you talking to us about it. It's, it does okay, sound very, very exciting. Much. 
Okay. <laughs> and uh, well, soon, not soon, but the next year you will, you may have to contact me again if we find something more exciting. Oh, well, we will keep you in mind, I promise. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. okay, bye. Bye. That was marine geologist George Ferentinos in Patras, Greece. Robert Frost once wrote that good fences make good neighbors. But one of the many flaws in that reasoning is that fences, no matter how good, can't keep out your neighbor's smells. Just ask the residents of Bad Helbrunn, Germany. The Bavarian town is known for its beautiful scenery, its adventure park, and its cheese. Local cheesemaker Wolfgang Hoffmann stocks about 200 types. Some he matures on site in Bad Helbrunn. But in recent years, Mr. Hoffman's practices have led to a decidedly immature spat. Manuela Kragler lives above Mr. Hoffman's shop, and since he moved back in 2016, she's been making a stink about the stink. Recently, Ms. Kragler even put up signs warning passers-by about the odor. Well, that left a bad taste in Mr. Hoffman's mouth, so he took his neighbor to court. And last week, a judge ruled that Ms. Kragler can complain all she wants verbally but the signs will have to come down. As the court puts it, quote, that a shop where large quantities of cheese are stored produces smells is a statement of fact, unquote. So the cheese smell will remain, and if Manuela Kragler is going to continue to take offense, she may as well get offense. Judging by the pictures, ancient Egyptians took a long time to get dressed for parties, and sometimes they topped their complicated outfit with an accessory, a decorative conical hat. You see it in all kinds of old images, but scholars weren't sure what to make of those hats because they never found any physical examples of them. Had they all been crushed or eaten during intense partying? Or were they just a case of artistic license? Well, according to research, we now know that cone hats were real, and the details of this discovery are published in the journal Antiquity this month. Corey Rogie is a co-author. She's a conservation scientist at the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston. That's where we reached her, and you'll hear Carol doing this interview. She recorded it before she headed off for her holiday vacation. Corey, first of all, where are these depictions of ancient Egyptians wearing head cones usually found? We see them in tomb paintings and both the non-elite and elite tombs, and we'll find them sometimes on Stella, on depictions of individuals on cartonnage coffins, kind of scattered throughout the funerary realm, I would say. What, what kinds of activities are going on when they're wearing these cones? So they're, they're banqueting scenes where the men and women are sitting in a banquet being served food. There are some scenes where the individuals are hunting in the marshes, and they will be wearing cones. Sometimes they are worshipping gods while wearing them or um, interacting with their deceased ancestors. And how often do you find depictions of ancient Egyptians wearing head cones? They're pretty common in the New Kingdom, so it's been a big mystery as to why, when something is so commonly shown, we haven't found it. Ah, I mean the actual physical object, right? 
Exactly. But and now, just before we we find out what you have found, you were talking. You're not talking about a pylon here. What? How, how large are these cones? They're small. So they sit on. They're shown sitting on top of the head, and some of them are smaller. Some of them are slightly taller, but they're smaller in height than the individual's head. So now, what have you found in the way of these head cones? So the archaeologists on the team found the first cone in 2010 when they were excavating one of the non-elite cemeteries at Amarna, and it was in situ on top of the woman's head. And then we they found another one later on in a disturbed burial. Do you know anything about the, the remains, the, the, those individuals who were, who were found in these two graves? So one of our co-authors is Dr. Gretchen Dabbs, and she's a specialist in bioarchaeology. And she knows that the first individual was a female adult. And like many of the non-elite people at Amarna, she'd had kind of a hard life. And there were indications of degenerative issues in her bones that suggested physical labor. The second individual, she wasn't able to determine the um, gender of the individual. So you found these. What are they, what are they actually made of? What, what, did, what do you now know about these cones? So that was my role. So I'm a scientist rather than an archaeologist, and I traveled out there with portable, non-destructive equipment, and we were able to determine that the primary constituent of these cones is wax, and the only wax that ancient Egyptians were known to have used was beeswax. So we can infer that it was a, a beeswax cone. Uh, and why do you think they were wearing beeswax cones on their heads? We don't know. <laughs> um, you know, given, given the depictions of when they're wearing them, it suggests that it's something to do with kind of an, an elevated or slightly beatified state. So they're able to interact with their deceased ancestors. They're able to interact with the gods. They're able to partake in ceremonies that will benefit them as individuals in their afterlife. There are some theories that have been put forward that these cones were kind of perfume dispensers, that they actually they were actually imparting some kind of, of perfumey odor to the person who was wearing it. What can you tell us about that? We So the non-destructive techniques we have to use in the field are good at measuring the primary constituent, and they're not so good at detecting materials that are there in relatively low amounts. And we would expect a perfume to be present in low amounts and to have largely been lost over thousands of years of burial. So we're not really able to say whether these were perfumed or not. Why do, are there even theories that they might have been perfume dispensers? There are a lot of scenes of them worshiping gods or interacting with their ancestors, and there's incense depicted. And a lot of those scenes also involve the individuals wearing cones. So there was kind of a hypothesis that there might be a scent connection there. And also in some of the banqueting scenes, the banqueters will be proffered flowers, and they'll be wearing cones. And so you have scented flowers. Maybe the cones were also scented. And there's some, was, wa- there's some wavy lines around the cones sometimes too, right? That might, en- it might be an image of scent emanating. Exactly. And they're decorated. Some of them are decorated with kind of wavy lines, which also kind of evokes that. Now, it's, you, is it possible that these were just, I mean, that there are more elaborate versions of this and these were, I don't know, the poor man's version of the of these cones? It is, but then why haven't we found them in intact burials? So we have intact burials for individuals who um, are royalty and 
who are high elite, and they've never been found there. So there must have been something about these two people and why they had them. You know, why didn't the other 700 individuals excavated in the Amarna cemeteries have them? There's information we don't yet know. I've often wondered if in some other time uh, that there will be archaeologists and scientists looking at, at our age and trying to figure out how, why we use things. And so, I mean, is it possible these things were, these cones were not really very significant at all and that, that maybe t- too much is being looked into them, then they're, they're not really that important? Well, that's always a case, but the fact that they do appear so very often in depictions means that, I mean, why waste your time drawing it and painting it if it doesn't have a significance? So there has to be some significance there. It may be that the significance in burial is balanced by the fact that in most cases, um, more economically well-off individuals would be buried in coffins or in sarcophagi, and maybe that kind of a burial, you didn't need the protection or the evocation of a special state that these poor people who were essentially buried in nothing more than reed matting and some textiles needed. Mm. Well, as always with discoveries, some some questions answered and uh, more questions produced, so I guess you have more work to do. Exactly. That's the the mark of a good project. (laughs) Thanks so much, Corey. It's been a pleasure. Corey Rogi is a co-author of a recently published paper on ancient Egyptian head cones. She's a conservation scientist at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Texas, which is where we reached her. It's that time of year. Christmas shoppers are scrambling like the elves in Santa's workshop to check everyone off their lists. But before they cry out, humbug, as it happens, would like to reassure them that they've still got two more sleeps to get everything wrapped up and under the tree. And if that doesn't do the trick, here's Alan Maitland with a reminder that the greatest gifts cannot be bought. Here's the former, as it happens, host reading O. Henry's 1905 story, The Gift of the Magi. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and 87 cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letterbox into which no letter would go and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. 
But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder puff. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only one dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only one dollar and eighty-seven cents to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an eight-dollar flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now, Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. She did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sofroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sofroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum watch chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and value 
The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. So she got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a corny island chorus girl. But what could I do? What could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the watch chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair, way down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. And cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you. Sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with a sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed to quickly wake. He unfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week, or a million a year. What's the difference? 
a mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you will unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore up the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs that Della had worshipped for long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jewel rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. The late Alan Maitland reading The Gift of the Magi. That story was written by O'Henry in 1905. If you'd like to hear it again, you can listen on our website at cbc.ca slash AIH.
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thank you for listening. I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Karen Gordon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.